The views expressed in our episode are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hello, everybody. My name is Tony Godwin. Welcome to Catfish Cops. And I'm Brandon Poor. Thank you for joining us again. We are highlighting day two of the Crimes Against Children Conference, um, where we're getting to sit down and speak with people as they pass by. Um, right now, we're going to talk with uh, a really great guest because he's got years just experience that we'll never even come close to. And you're about to hear why. Uh, joining us is Graham Hill. Welcome, Graham. Hello. Good morning. Very much appreciate you uh, sitting down with us. Thank you. There, Our listeners are going to be so excited to hear kind of the wealth of knowledge they're about to to uh, get from you, Graham. Talk about what your background is. Ex- introduce yourself to us. Okay. So um, I was in the Royal Marines for a number of years and then uh, left and joined the police uh, and I was a detective in London for 30 years. Wow. Um, and I specialised in uh, child abduction, child abduction, child murder, um, and investigating major crime. Uh, and then I got us into a sort of a niche market where uh, they wanted to form a behavioural analysis unit in London. Oh. Uh, and so they sent me over to America to work for a while with the FBI and to see what they were doing. Wow. And then I went back to London and reproduced what they do in the BAU3 at Quantico in yeah. London. And then I ran that for a couple of years, um, uh, about five years, and then I retired. And since I retired from the police service, I've been a criminologist and a behavioral profile. Okay. Wow. Now, you heard a like 45-second <laughs> introduction, and but that's like decades worth of, of experience talking right there. So let's talk about your work doing abductions and and homicide work what what was what drew you into that how did you get involved in that field um i had a famous case in the uk of a a boy that was abducted and murdered in the 1960s and in 2001 they got a dna exhibit upgrade and were able to load that onto our national database and they got a, a hit oh and it turned out to be a guy that was then in his 70s that killed the boy and they gave me the case and said, you know, go, go, go arrest him. So, so, Conquer. And one of the problems is it's difficult enough to get people to talk about things they did yesterday, last week. Right. Try sitting down with someone and saying, what did you do on a Thursday in 1967? Right. Uh, it's quite difficult to do. So we sort of tried to attack it in a more therapeutic kind of way. So we took techniques from what people do in, in therapy and what, happens with sex offenders when they're in treatment programs and then we tried to put that into the police environment so obviously there's a different set of rules what you can and what you can't say but what we tried to do is soften the the interview technique and use therapeutic techniques where we could and that started 
as the basis for what now most police forces in the UK do, which is why the behavioural analysis unit that I ran was created. Right. Wow. The idea was that the days of sitting down and saying, did you do it, didn't you do it, good right. cop, bad cop, they're yeah. gone. Right. You know, and also with sex offenders, particularly sex offenders that sexually abuse children, they're a very different animal. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I teach all my students that uh, I travel the world into teaching about interviewing and teaching about understanding offender behavior. And what I say is very simply is these are different specialist kind of offender. Yeah. And so you need some specialist skills to be able to deal with them. So the analogy I always use is if you've got a Ford, you can take it to any garage and a mechanic can fix it for you. If you've got a Ferrari, you've got to take it to someone who knows about Ferraris. Right. Right. So the idea about what I now do is, is I try and use my experience, the things that I've done in the past, um, my knowledge of these offenders, um, and I give that to investigators, social workers, child protection professionals, and say, go use it, go play with it. You know, right. sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't work. But yeah. There's no point in having lots of research and I've had this argument so many times with professors in universities around the world who've done some great pieces of research right. and then you say to them so who have you told and they go right. no one yeah <laughs> so you spent five years doing a research project and you've told <laughs> nobody no one. knows so about what it. was the point yeah research that's locked away in the ivory towers of universities is no good to anyone yeah you need to right. get it to the people that need it to the cops the social workers and say there you go you might not agree with it. You might right. not like it. And if it doesn't work in real life, what help is exactly. it, right? And if, you know, I'm a great believer. In, I, the work I do now, having been a cop and a senior detective for a long time, and now being a private citizen who's, who's a, an academic and someone that trains cops, what I say to them is, is just go and experiment. Yeah. You know, some things will work, some things won't. They yeah. don't always work with every offender, right. you know. And just because it fails with one doesn't mean yeah. to say you give it up. You just try it again. You, re, you re, remanufacture it in a different way and deliver it different, you know. I'm always amazed when I, I said something to someone interviewing um, that I, I thought was complimentary to them. And the you could tell from the face that they made it was completely taken in a way that, and so that was a really kind of a moment of learning for me that like some things fall differently in different situations. And I think right. that's what you're saying. Yeah. I think the issue for me is, is that dealing with people that have a sexual interest in children, which is what this conference is about in essence, right, is a really specialist area of policing and you can't get enough training. You yeah. know, this conference is invaluable because people come from all over the world to one place you hear different perspectives, you go away with new ideas and you try them out. Yeah. You know, I, I always say to all of my students, you know, I'll give you some handouts. You can read them or you can throw them in the bin. I'm still getting paid. <laughs> right. Yeah. At the, end, at the end of the day, it's your job. If you want to be good at it, you've yeah. got to practice. It's like anything. Yeah. You've got to practice. Malcolm Gradwell said 10,000 hours makes you an expert. Right. You know, you've got to, this is a job that you never stop learning. You know, I, I was still learning after 30 years as a cop and I'm still learning now after 10 years as a criminologist. That's the truth. I, you know, the things I always tell my kids is like, if it was easy, everybody would do it. You know, I'm like, you have to put in the work. You have to be open and receptive to trying something new, trying something different. Like it, it I understand completely the frustrations I see when I have people in my own agency who are just, they just don't give a crap, you know? And I'm like, 
the the level of concern is sometimes a footprint high, and I, mm-hmm. I wish everybody would just take a chance, just try, just well, and it's read the something, most learn something important person that you could be working for Absolutely. a child right yeah, i mean if you can't get motivated to do this work yeah then you can't get motivated for much right you know th- this is the one area of policing where you change people's lives in such a way and you never know the impact you have because you don't see the end result when that child is grown up and becomes you know right. a rounded human being and has a life of their own the thing about um uh policing i've learned over the years is that you've got to take a risk sometimes you know yeah. you've got to we wouldn't have a lot of the techniques we've got now if people weren't prepared to try it out for the first time yeah. if everyone plays it safe <laughs> right. amen you know we'd still be doing stuff like we were doing in the 40s and 50s and i'll give you a classic example so in 2000 and uh 2003 now i dealt with uh, a murder and that murder was the murder of a man who was driving a, a truck down a freeway and a guy lobbed a brick from a footbridge. Listen oh. carefully because you're about to hear groundbreaking techniques because I know where the... Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. So, that's all right. Um, so um, it was late at night. It was dark. It was raining. And the brick hit the, 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 the windscreen and hit the driver on the chest and killed him. Wow. And the lorry went on its side and, and skidded to a halt. Now, a lorry is a truck. truck. I have to just yes. translate. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get that translation earlier. That's good. Yeah. Um, the key's in the fact it's called English, by the way. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, but that's a low blow. <laughs> well played. Well played, sir. It's so, the word police over here. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the traffic cops get there and they think it's an accident. And then they realize that potentially it's not an accident. So they call me. I, I'm the on-call, um, what's called Senior Investigating Officer for Murder. So I get there and it's very clear that this brick has killed this driver. Uh, interestingly, the brick has got some blood on it. So we think, well, where did that come from? And we work out from the trajectory that it's probably come from a place of height rather than from the side of the road. And we trace it right. back to the footbridge. And then we start doing some investigation around the footbridge and we find that there's a house being built nearby with these particular bricks. Okay. And then we go further up the road and we find that actually there's another brick where they've tried to break into a car and they've smashed the car and that's where they've cut themselves and gotcha. blood on the brick. So we, we send the uh, uh, brick away for analysis and we get a full DNA profile of the blood. And we run the profile on the UK National DNA Database and there's no hit. And at that time, there was around about 50,000 people on the database. We were one of the early databases in the, in the world, really. So because DNA was a UK invention in the first place, we right. were the f- really early to the party in terms of using DNA as evidential profiles. And so they said, well, the guy you're looking for um, or the person you're looking for is not on our database. So we then thought, well, okay, let's think about this logically. Let's start thinking geographically. Where would the person that would do this likely to live? what age would they be so we drew up a criteria of the people we were looking for it was round we sort of said 18 to 35 it's likely to be a male rather than a female it's late at night we we hypothesized that they would have been drinking and probably committing some sort of other crime in the area so we had this profile of the type of offender we were looking for so we started doing what's called mass screening okay. we started knocking on houses and saying would you give us a consent to a mouse swab for dna because what we were looking for was to hit the person who had thrown the brick. 
So we started sending batches of 100 to the lab for comparison with the DNA profile. And after we'd done four or 5,000, they said, no, no matches, you're not. And then I was under pressure. In the way the um, murder investigation works in the UK, you have a, a huge team that someone of my rank, so I was a detective chief superintendent, someone of my rank would run several murders at the same time. So I'd oh. have lots of different officers working for me that were lower ranks but they ran the day-to-day murder investigations and I set the strategy and then I have meetings with them every day about that murder that murder so um, I had other murders to investigate so and then financially it was costing a lot of money and that's I was what under, my question was, was how under, much does 5,000 <laughs> DNA things cost and then we were we were under a lot of pressure from uh, to close the investigation down so they basically said to me you got you got you got a month shut it solve it or close it Right. Uh, so I remembered a few months before I'd been to a conference in London where this scientist stood up and he was a bit wacky, a bit of scientist, and he sort yeah. of talked about this technique where they can break down the DNA and tell us about different parts of the DNA, what it means, what it might mean evidentially. So I rang them up and said, I'm quite interested in that. Is that something I could use? And they said, well, tell us about the case. So we discussed the case. Um, and they said, well, we might be able to do something for you. So I sent my profile to them and they then said, okay, um, we're interested in, in that profile. We think we can find people that are related to your profile. Wow. Um, and it's called familial DNA. Wow. And, we and all, this is the first time it's now. being used, yeah. right? So this was the first time it was ever used in a, a, a police wow. investigation. Um, and it's uh, what happened was is that we said to them, okay, um, if you can't find me the offender, find me someone who's related to the offender. And they came back with a list. Um, wow. And we overlaid the geography onto the list because what the list tells you is where their swab was taken. So it might gotcha. be in London, it might be in Glasgow, Edinburgh. So we went close to where we thought the offender might be living. And of 51 names, he was the second on the list. Oh, wow. Get out of Gosh. town. And wow. within two weeks, we'd arrested him. He confessed. And then he was later convicted. And that's the world's first conviction using familial DNA. Which, wow. if you're listening and don't know what that term means, like we're talking about the ways they've caught BTK killer, yeah. the the Golden State killer. A lot of that familial DNA, the genealogical DNA profiling, is is the way they're catching longtime serial killers. Correct? It is, and and it's it's gone even further now. Now with DNA, they can tell whether someone has diabetes. They can tell whether someone might be a particular hair coloring. There's all kinds of stuff. Graham, you were looking do. at me when you said diabetes. I, I did don't too. Understand what the, <laughs> yeah. And I yeah, looked at Brandon. Thank you. It's um, it's uh, it's one of those things that's revolutionised policing. You know, yeah. you, you know the big things: fingerprinting, yeah, DNA, familial DNA. One They're of the, the questions really I was going to ask, like you said, you went around voluntarily, just assuming your suspect lived in that area. How receptive were people with, obviously, you submitted 5,000 uh, samples. Did you get blowback from anybody? Like, no, nah, yeah, you're not doing we, that? Uh, we, one of the things that I had to do as the senior investigating officer is write policy about how you do that. Because right. the problem with familial DNA is you open up a can of worms. Right. So the right. minute you knock on someone's door and say, I want to take, will you give me a swab of your DNA? Right. Um, you're really sort of invading their privacy in all kinds of different ways. So we had to have policies about what, are the, what if they say no? 
you know, yeah. have, we have the grounds to arrest them. Is there more that we could do? And right. our law is very different to yours. You need warrants for everything in America. We right. don't. Yeah. If we arrest someone for an arrestable offence, the sweeping powers we have are huge. Yeah. You know, we can search anything owned, occupied, controlled by that person. Wow. So it's, it's, it's huge. We don't have the warrant system that you have. Is the scrutiny, well, well I guess you don't have to have that review to even get in there. If you have developed a PC to arrest somebody, Whatever you do from there is never scrutinized or later well, on down the road? It's scrutinized when you get to court because yeah, yeah. clearly your evidence has to be obtained in a very clear and concise way sure. and within the law. So the thing about the legal system in the UK, and it's probably the same in America, is, is what they often do is if they can't attack the evidence, they attack the process of the evidence. Gotcha. Yeah, so, you know, we can't, you know, we can't disprove that this piece of evidence is important to the case, but we can certainly... Uh, persuade the jury that you got it illegally you yeah. obtained gotcha, it in a gotcha, way gotcha. that so so my job is is to is to, was to write policy about how we're going to do that and keep it lawful right right and so we wrote a policy around taking samples from people and what would happen and the problem is is we were getting phone calls from people saying you know i don't i don't think that my husband doesn't know this, but actually he's not the father of the child. And oh, you know, wow. it opens yeah. up a whole can. So, yeah, oh, you wow. are, you're not kidding when you say opening up a can. Yeah. Like there's some, so there are times I'm sure that people are reluctant, not because they're hiding a crime, but they're just like, yeah. this may just tear our family apart. Yeah. Right. And that's right. Yeah. I mean, they're not hiding the fact that they're, they're protecting a killer. Sure. They're hiding the fact that they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to help themselves yeah they don't want to just implode their family you know so it's it's it's, with with dna you end up with a lot of ethical issues that you have to fill and see like in america now some states allow the use of private genealogy sites right yeah yeah, which has opened up a whole new database for you to search and you're starting to get a lot of joy from that right um New York State, for instance, have just passed a law stopping familial DNA because they're not confident that it's being used and they think it's an infringement of people's civil liberties. In the UK, the system is very simple. If you're arrested for a recordable offence, we can take your DNA and it stays on our database for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean you don't have to be convicted and you don't have to be charged. You just have to be arrested. Um, And that sits on there and the way it works on our system is crime scene profiles are loaded on all of the time and the people that have got their sample on the database are continually being circulated on the database and every 24 hours they cross-reference. So every day, every day you will get new hits So what started to happen is people get arrested for very simple offences like driving while they're drunk. Right. They have a sample taken from them. They load it on. And, hey, this profile matches a rape that happened 12 years ago. Holy smokes. So we've started getting more and more hits. And we know that criminals don't just happen to commit that murder the one time and nothing else has ever been done, right? So that, that makes sense why you would be getting, I mean... Small things leading to big things, correct? Yeah, I mean, and that's the problem. And the problem with DNA, or the fascinating thing about DNA, is is that unwittingly people are searching for their long-lost relative. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> unwittingly, they're, ho- they're opening up uh, a method for the police to use to track someone who they might not even know is in right. their family. Yeah, right. So, you know, you, 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 you're looking for old Uncle Tom or right. Bill that, yeah. you know, you, you, you've never heard of. And inadvertently, you load, inadvertently you you load up 
a DNA profile that the police say, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and lots it, of And it does raise up the ethical issues. It raises up that, you know, what we kind of see between user privacy and user protection in mm-hmm. encryption even, things yeah. like that. I think yeah. there's a comparison there where there's a very fine line and sometimes we don't know where the line mm-hmm. is yet because it's still being I agree. made. And, and, and the man that invented DNA or discovered DNA is a man called Alec Jeffries. He's a, mm-hmm. a scientist, Sir Alec Jeffries in, in the UK. And he has actually been very vocal about how familial DNA is used. Okay. He's right. concerned about how far it will go. And if the man that created DNA yeah, is has an issue. about it, then there's, you need to sit up and listen. That's in yeah. every yeah. robot movie ever made. The exactly. person that makes them yeah. complains about the way they're... I mean, yeah. I think there are ways that we need wow. to... I mean, it's, it's a great technique, and we shouldn't um, uh, not, you know, not be using it in the way we are. We just need to be a, a bit mindful about yeah. the way it's used. And, yes. the, and, and the other side of the coin is... is very recently in, in America, for instance, there, there's a guy that was exonerated for a yeah. crime using familial DNA. Yeah. Right. So it's not necessarily about convicting. Right, right. It right. can be a really powerful tool to say, well, this person didn't do it. Did anybody well, that on the list that you had that was a refusal, did that, if they fit the sort of profile that you were targeting, did that maybe move them to a list of like, okay, let's let's figure something else out yeah well normally we would do is if we would have the grounds to arrest them we would then arrest them and that would allow us to then take their sample oh i got you and sometimes if we didn't have the grounds then you know we'd just put them on the list and say you know maybe we'll come back to that person you right, know got you um so the the issue really is is that familial dna is a great tool you just got to be mindful about how you use it and, and yeah. where it goes and, and, and people get too excited about it you know? yeah wow. and the other thing to remember and i don't need to tell you guys this is that Forensic evidence is the jewel in the crown. You still got to build a circumstantial case, you yeah. know, uh, because otherwise the defence are going to say, "Well, yeah, you got my client's DNA, but there's a lawful reason why my client's DNA is at the scene." Right. Yeah. So you've got to build, still got to do that detective work and put them in the area. Yeah, and absolutely, all of that kind of good stuff. police work. Still a part of it, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, and, you know, basics never change. You know, yeah. you know, speaking to people, right, uh, knocking on people's doors, all of that's as crucial today as it ever was. Really. And I think we're right. pretty vocal about like, uh, we want to, I mean, if we want to prove you didn't do it as much as we want to prove someone did it, we want to make sure yeah. that the person that is being charged with something is appropriately yeah. and, and right. you know, correctly charged. Well, I've always seen police work, particularly detective work. The job is to put the, is to put the evidence or the, put the facts before the court. Yes. I gave up a long time ago, <laughs> trying to predict what the jury is going to oh, say yeah. because that. it just eats you alive and yes, you just you can't live like that. So yeah. Yeah. I found that um, my you want job, the truth, yeah, was to search for the truth and you follow the evidence. The best ca- the best investigations are where you start off with ten, or, you know, maybe five or ten hypotheses about what happened, theories right. about what may or may not have happened, and I always liken it to that early in the murder investigation they glow really bright. Yeah. yeah, and then slowly as you learn more, they start to dim, and two or three of them will bl- will glow even brighter, and so you're left with two main lines of investigation. Right, and then at one point you've got to make a decision: am yeah. I going left or am I going right? Yeah, and if you follow the evidence, then you are confident that what you're putting before the court is the best possible case. Yes, the, all of the cases that have gone horribly wrong have been cases where people have already decided who did it, That's, and yeah. they make it fit. That's rather than so, follow the evidence. That's such a so good crucial. point. Like I, I, I share with you in that um, 
sentiment, I, I see this peripherally, like obviously in the role that we play is child exploitation related. And I'm sure Brandon's in the same boat, but we get pulled into other investigations, bigger investigations, homicides and things. And so I see that I see detectives that pigeonhole on what they think has they've bitten on the, on the theme or whatever. And they, they, they exclude everything else only to point towards the one theme that they've bitten on. And, and I, it's quite frustrating to see that. And so, you know, you always are trying to push a little and say, well, Hey, let's think of this, think of this, but uh, <laughs> just people get these blinders on play, it, right? You well, know? And, and you see the thing is about, um, which is uh, sort of leads me on to that, the TV show that I've got coming out. The yeah. TV show that I've got coming out is a 10 part series about um, murder detectives in, in, in the UK. And what I did was chose people that I knew right. um, because they're all different. They all come from different backgrounds. They all got different investigative techniques and skills. And what they do is they overlay their personality onto the investigation. And in the UK, the way it works is you, you, you as the senior detective, you write all the policies about how it's done. And then you have to defend it when you get to court. Right. So if the defense attack a particular policy about how you got the DNA or how you did a forensic examination or what you did in the investigation, right. you have to defend it with the policy that you've written. And sometimes that can be quite difficult. And if on a long murder investigation, you can have like five, six hundred decisions. Yeah. They're all recorded, all printed off of a computer into a hard file that you stand in court and you have to justify it. Right. Right. And the judge, will, the, the defense will say, well, why didn't you do this? Right. So yeah. you end up talking more about what you didn't do yeah. than what you, you did do, do. About what you did do. <laughs> and sometimes there's a reason why, like, I didn't explore this, yeah. you know, 30 people, be- these 30 people, because there wasn't a reason. To. Yeah. And yeah. all you need to do is record your rationale for the decision and then right. let the jury decide whether they agree with it or not. You know, yeah. if I stand up and say, well, I followed this line of investigation because all the evidence pointed towards that yeah. and these are the reasons and I excluded these investigations because I didn't feel that we had enough to do that. Yeah. And they either they either like what they hear or, or they not. don't like what they hear. Sometimes yeah. you got to shut the shell game down exactly. a bit, right? <laughs> and you know, uh, it's at the end of the day, it's sometimes you, it, the buck stops with you as the most senior investigating officer. Right. You make a decision and you stand by it. Yeah. You know, you're either going to be right or you're going to be wrong. And, and that's yeah. why you get paid more wow. money than the average Joe to do <laughs> oh, it. And following the following the evidence is the way it should be. That's Absolutely. what we stand behind is that, you know, there there's a reason why things are there. If they're there, of course, we're trying to do, just find the truth and not. And also, when it comes to this kind of crime, child sexual abuse, child murder. I mean, my PhD is in men that abducted, sexually abused and murdered children under the age of 12. I did a comparative case study. It took me seven years of men in American maximum security prisons and men in prisons in the UK. Um, and what it tells you, what, it, what I've learned is that they're all very different. They mm-hmm. all offend for lots of different reasons. Yeah. And you have to unpick what their story is. Right. But, but people get very emotional about this type of crime. Yeah. And when you, when you overlay your moral code and right. your emotion onto investigation, it can be, right. get skewed very yeah. easily. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be detached. You have to be laid back, step, right. step away from it and say, okay, I'm going to, I think I understand this type of offending. Right. But if you don't, you need to go and find out about it because right. exactly. this is really important stuff. That, you know? that glimpse behind the mask is what I kind of refer to it because we don't always get that rare opportunity to get the offender's perspective of how they felt and what drove and yeah. got them to that level. To me, it's the most, 
I could talk to you for five hours. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> because, people are fascinated by what I do because, you know, that, they say, oh, you're a, you're a criminologist, you're a profiler, and it sounds really sexy. Yeah. But the reality right. of it is you spend a lot of time listening to tape and, you yeah. know, chatting to people in prisons and stuff, and they can take you to some dark places. You Absolutely. Know? And, and I've, I've, I've long sort of become sort of not, not immune to it, but I don't get, for me, work is one thing and my personal life is another. Right. They're very two separate things. Sure. And I've never let the two join because right. I think that's a bit of a recipe for all of the stuff we see about what is bad about policing, yeah, yeah, the anxiety absolutely. and right. the, the pressure and the stress. Right. So for me, it's about knowledge is power. You know, if you understand yeah. why offenders act the way they do, you, you will be more effective investigating next yeah. crime and you just become better at what you do yeah it doesn't matter whether you never meet an offender you or you never meet a victim right. even if you work in the background you're an analyst it just sets the landscape against what yeah. you do and it just makes you better at what you do you know, knowledge is really important it's without, fascinating without giving any sort of investigative techniques away um i do want to talk about you know we're what we've seen is even experienced investigators like you said they get emotional when it comes to crimes against children but like there are there are criminals who commit crimes that they have no remorse for and they don't care if anyone knows mm -hmm. but it always seems like when it comes to a crime against children even those hard-hearted criminals don't want to share because it's a child mm. and the you know the there's a social moral taboo around even yeah. this and so when you're talking to that offender when you talked about you know a more therapeutic approach to someone who may have offended like you said in the 60s they killed a child in the 60s now they're what 40 50 60 years past how do you open the door to talk about that um, again i don't want to give away techniques but i want to know like if you can share with our listeners about how they how you approach that kind of thing because i can i can imagine someone that did that is probably never talked about it mm -hmm. and they're certainly not going to open up and tell you something that's going to put them in jail for the rest of their life as easily as they might or if it was yesterday <laughs> or are they yeah how did you approach that well i mean one of the techniques that i teach all my students is is you really need to do your research you know good interviews are like baking a cake You've got to have the right ingredients, and then you have to put them into the mix in the right order. Right. Okay, so interviewing is exactly the same. If you know very little about the person you're interviewing, you're already on, the, on a difficult yeah. sort of playing surface. Right. So you've got to do your homework. You do as much research as you can, and where you have gaps, that's where you start the interview. You start exploring where you don't have the information because you're interested in understanding what makes someone tick and what motivates them to act in a particular kind of way. And the worst thing you can do is to ask yourself, why would someone do that to a child? Right. right. Because if you start from that premises, you've already built a wall between yeah. yourself and understanding the behavior. Right. What you need to do is flip it and say, how does that person see the world so that right. what they did they find acceptable to other to them. They right. can live with what they did. Yeah. So I talk about understanding what someone's living. That's a long time to live with it, right? It is. Yeah. And the longer they live with it, the more anxious they get. If you think that people that sexually abuse children don't have any anxiety over it, you'd oh, be right. massively wrong. Right, right. They're screwed up. They're chewed up by it. And some can't cope. And if you look at the suicide rate for people that are accused of this kind of crime, 
right. it's grossly disproportionate to any other type of criminality. Right. Because when you get arrested for this stuff, you don't only lose your liberty, you lose your family, your status. Yeah, fractures, yeah, everything. Yeah, your every, reputation. You know, your yeah. life just falls apart yeah, and becomes right. a car yeah. crash. So the consequences for this kind of crime are huge. Yeah. And for some people, they just can't live with that. Right. And the ones that have to live with that, they have to manage their anxiety. And that's when they start mixing up their thoughts and feelings and you know this, this mixed up thinking about it's okay to act in the way I did. And that's... That has its basis in something called operant conditioning, which is about positive and negative reinforcement. So if you tell yourself it's okay to do something enough times and you rationalize it, minimize it and justify it, eventually you can live with it. You can manage it. It becomes something that you can just just run alongside. It becomes an easy thing to do. And then what offenders tell you is they do a small thing. And then it allows them to do something a bit bigger and something a bit right. bigger. And then eventually they can progress right. to that bigger thing. Wow. Which is, and that, I think wow. that answers the question, or at least starts to answer the question that people often have is like, how could someone have done this and then appeared normal or at least somewhat normal for so long in their life? You know, you think about even the, the, the serial killers, you know, that have a family otherwise and, and people are like, how could they hide that and become something that's they live with for 40 50 years well i think i think what you need to remember is is that um when someone commits a crime like a child murder or child abduction they will have a um, a reaction in the same way that we would have but they are in this cycle of offending they're in this they're highly conditioned when when you talk about people that have a sexual interest in children some of them have been conditioned for decades. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been thinking sexually about children for long periods of time. And so often, so I'll give you an example. In, in the study group for my PhD, all the men abducted and sexually murdered children under the age of 12. Not one of those men set out to murder a child on that day. Right. Some of them were going home from work. Some of them were going to the local shop for a paper. Yeah. They were confronted with a set of circumstances that led them to act in a particular way. They'd been thinking sexually about children right. for decades. Right. Some of them looked at images of children. Some of them didn't. Yeah. Um, but they all were fantasizing and masturbating to their fantasies. And that's known as conditioning. And the longer you condition yourself, the more ingrained the behavior becomes. Right. And the more difficult it is to then jump out of that, which is why sex offender treatment programs historically tend to fail right and so what all of the offenders would say is that they acted on a moment and if you study criminology that's what's known as um environmental theory that the environment around the crime dictates how a particular offender acts so you end up with this offender who's been thinking sexually about children for decades put in a position where there's a vulnerable child where they look around and they seize the moment right and they act and so for me people always say to me well are there people that look at pictures of children or and then there's people that because they look at pictures of children they go out and abduct children for me it's about opportunity right yeah. you know if offenders are given an opportunity and they might wait 10 15 20 30 years but when confronted with the right set of environmental circumstances if they if they've developed an ingrained sexual interest in children they will act on it yeah yeah we've preached that, that many times that access and opportunity is is it really the only thing that's going to separate that guy that's looking at it and getting that sexual gratification to, oh my gosh, let me seize the moment because yeah. I just got myself into this and we have to tell people have a lot. Sometimes it's not yeah. that mm. they have done it. It's just they haven't been given that yet. 
Uh, sometimes they may not because they haven't or they wouldn't let themselves get to that point, maybe. But I think that some people believe it's either you're looking at child exploitation material or your hands on offending and never the two shall meet. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. that's odd. I, I, think, I think you just have to, it's too easy to pigeonhole people. Right, right, right. I think the thing you've got to remember is everybody's different. And as they go through their life, their interests change to a degree and the way they behave change yep, to a degree. I so agree. you get people that look at pictures and that's the end game. They yeah. never do anything else. Right. And that, they're happy with that. That's, their, that's how they get their kicks. Yeah. And then there's other people that will progress given the opportunity to contact offending. Yeah. And there's some people that would never look at a picture because that's not their thing. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. some of the men in my study group abducted and murdered a child under 12 and they worked in IT and never looked at one picture. Right. Wow. And so to, to just sort of overlay this template or this stereotypical view of what this yeah. offending about, yeah. it never works. Yeah. They're human beings, whether you like it or not. Right. And human <laughs> beings have all kinds of flaws and backstories. They're complex human beings. And, yeah. you know, what I try to teach my students at this conference and wherever I train is that we are talking about human behaviors. The same human behaviors that you and me use every day are exactly the same as what sex offenders use, but in a different way to a different end game. They right. didn't go to some dark art school to learn to be sex right. offenders. <laughs> they went to the same schools and universities yeah. as you and me, yeah. and they grew up in the same environment as you. They just see the world differently. Right. They see their behavior differently. Yeah. They rationalize, they justify, they minimize, they intellectualize all of the reasons why it's okay to behave that way. Right. And then they try and convince other like-minded people, which is why when they all get together online, they fuel and validate their own beliefs. Yes. Yeah. But the bottom line is, is their behavior is, is so close to you and me, which is good because yeah. it allows us to interpret and understand that. Because if they were so far away from us, right. we'd never get it. Right. Exactly. We'd never be I, able to understand it. And that. I think exactly. that, that comes into our interviews a lot, where it's like we have to bring the human aspect in order to get i mean i i would say and maybe you would disagree but if you don't relate in a human way to any offender they're never going to tell you anything because they're totally shut agree. down from yeah. the start i right? totally agree i mean i talk a lot about the use of empathy yeah. you know yeah. uh, intelligent use of empathy is really important and there's two different types of offenses uh, uh, type of empathy you can use with these offenders one is called uh, responsive where you react to what you see so you know, you, they get emotional. You ask them why they're feeling emotional. You ask them if they need a few minutes to compose themselves. You see it and say it. And what offenders tell us is that's really powerful. Yeah. Because what it tells the offender is you're listening. Yeah. yeah. And you're understanding yeah. that they're struggling with that, you know. Right. Um, so there is responsive and then there is preemptive where you get ahead of the game before the uh, interview and you say, right. you know, are you feeling all right? We're going to talk about some difficult subjects here. You know, right. have you had a cup of coffee? All that kind of stuff. It sounds really fluffy and woolly. No. Yeah. But, you know, what we know about offenders is they're looking for a friendly face in the crowd. They're yeah. looking for someone that they're going to relate to. Because when you talk to offenders like I do, what they say is if they're ever going to give it up, and tell someone they're only going to do it to someone that gets it. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. So who would, why would you tell your most intimate, dark, the worst thing fantasies? you've ever done yeah. to someone? Why right? would you tell someone that you didn't yeah. think exactly. was going to get it and they were going to judge you? Right. So right. they're looking for that person that is going to understand and get it. And then they're most likely to, and in my experience, if you create the right environment, sex offenders that sexually abuse children will talk. Yeah. Yeah. Because 
it's not a subject they can talk to many people about. Right. So what you have to do is you have to say to them, I get it. I understand it. I may not have lived your life, right. but I know what's going on for you. And the minute they know that you understand what's going on for them, that's a game yeah. changer. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, there's so many. Oh, my gosh. Like, uh, again, I could. We've got three I hours. Could, we need I could to talk, talk to right you about for this. hours and hours because this is this is where my headspace is. Like, it's the whole thing I enjoy the most about the job. Um, I can't stand the material I have to look at to get to that person. But the challenge and and the I, I don't know like it, uh, it's the opportunity to yeah. at least try to understand and then be able to report back to people who we work for obviously mm. about this is what this person's motivated by this is what's bringing them to this place it's you mentioned earlier about they find like-minded people to discuss right so talk about is that that's why we feel, at least, these online places, um, not just dark web, surface web as well, yeah. why these are so dangerous because these offenders are looking for people that they can not only find that are like-minded, but then they're discussing and it's fueling sort of that yeah. that desire to and the fantasy for the opportunity that they're going to look for. It's, it's almost cultivating that danger even further. Yeah. Um, well... The thing about fantasy is, first thing to say is, every all, all human beings fantasize. Absolutely. You know? And thankfully, we can't get locked up for our fantasies. Right. Otherwise, <laughs> the prisons of the world will be full. Yeah. Um, but what goes on in your head, if you never share it with anyone, no one ever knows. Yeah. Right. And no one ever cares because they never know about it. Right. right. The thing about fantasy with sex offenders is, is they often tend to share their fantasies, and right. their fantasies are deviant sexual fantasies, which right. are contrary to law. Yeah. Right. And so that puts them in a whole different category of exactly. offender. So they're looking for people that they can discuss this stuff with, and the online environment has given them the opportunity to fuel and validate their beliefs. Yeah. So one of the most common questions that I'm asked at conferences like this, in between you know coffee or in the bar, is. Um, it's all about the internet, isn't it? You know, they, it's created people with a sexual interest in children. They have always existed. <laughs> yeah. What about the in, thousands of years yeah, before, right? You know, Alexander the Great exactly. traveled the world with an entourage of small little boys. You know, yeah. he was, uh, and I've had people say to me in an interview, you know, Alexander the Great liked children and, and right. you know, they've got statues to him all over the right. world. Now, if that's not mixed up thinking right, right. about rationalizing <laughs> and your behavior, yeah. what yeah. is? Exactly. Well, we've, we've often quoted, there's a quote that we use a lot of in our presentations that men men often know what's evil but they they have a hard time defining what's what evils are excusable yeah yeah, yeah. And, and the thing for me is is that i think the problem is when you deal with these type of offenders or this type of criminality if you start to see everyone as intrinsically bad people yeah you are on a slippery slope Absolutely. what you got to remember is they are people that have done bad things right they're not inherently bad people. Right. They've learned to see the world in a particular way. And one of the most common questions here is, are people born with a sexual interest in children? Right. All, all of the, <laughs> all of the research, all of the research, <laughs> and there's a huge body of research into this area going back like 50, 60 years now. Yeah. It all tells us that it's learned behavior, yeah. right? that they learn to see the world in a particular way. They mm. learn to sexualize children in a particular way that allows them to do stuff that most people would be appalled at yeah, right, right and right. so they're desensitized to all kinds of stuff and once you understand that and you understand how they may have got to that place 
you don't start to condone it, but you start to understand it. And when you start right. to understand it, you start to unpick it. And when you start to unpick it, you just become better at investigating it. Yeah. And ultimately, that's what stops, minimizes the, the number of victims. You right, know? Right. You're never going to eradicate child sexual abuse. It's always existing. All you can do is reduce and educate num- you know, parents, society, no. investigators, that this is a problem you have to get your head around. And once you get your head around it and become effective at doing it, you're doing right. your part to minimize to the number of yeah. victims there are. With Man. the men that you studied, um, was it always sexual when, uh, when, with the men you studied in prison for that had abducted and, and murdered a okay. child, was it always sexual? So one of the, the mistakes that people make is that they think that child sexual abuse is just about sex. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get a visitor here. <laughs> he almost got up there. Uh, Brown, you'll hear from Brownstein on uh, Thursday. So so if it was just about sex, it would be really easy to understand. Right. Because it wouldn't be mixed up with all this other stuff that's going on yeah. with offenders. But what we know about people that do this kind of crime is that they're trying to fulfill other intrinsic needs. Um, and there's that everyday power and control one that everyone talks about. Right. But there's other things like autonomy, need to make their own decisions. There's other things like relatedness to play out that pseudo relationship that some offenders play out. Yeah. yeah. So what offenders are doing is they have this cocktail of things that they're trying to fulfill, these needs. Part of it is sexual and part of it is other basic intrinsic needs. Mm. And so lots of offenders will say to you, when I interview them that have committed some of the most terrible crimes, they'll say... Yeah, I know something sexual happened, but that wasn't the reason that wasn't the I primary. did it in the first yeah. place. It was a byproduct of something else I was trying to do. Yeah, that and, wasn't the focus. And the problem is, is that the system, uh, police, the judicial system, we label them as sex offenders because we assume that the motivation is simply sex. The sex, right. But it's far more than that. And the problem is, is if, if, if society just... <laughs> If society just says, well, they're a sex offender and doesn't delve into why they might have committed that crime, then we start to get to a place where all we do is lock up sex offenders and never explore the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you don't stop things. And then way, you right? can't intervene yeah. in something you don't understand because you've right. never bothered to look into it. Right, right, right. So, right. you know, and makes and so I, much sense. I struggle with the American system sometimes is that for a long time you've had a culture of locking people up for long periods of time. And you struggle as a society to monitor them, right? You know, to, to give them a sentence and say, okay, you're going to come out, you're going to live in society, and we're going to monitor you intelligently. But y- y- your system is unsustainable because yeah. you've got to build more and more prisons the longer you lock people up for. There are some offenders that should never be released. And right. I spent my whole life locking up people. So I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not right. trying to release anybody <laughs> from prison. Right. But the bottom line is, is that some people need to be in prison forever yeah. because yeah. they can't walk the streets. Right. And others pay their debt to society. But when they come out, they need to be given a chance to integrate back into a community so that they think twice before they reoffend again. Right. But what happens is but how do you they come out. Keep track of them, right? Yeah, they yeah. come out and then they're, they're ostracized from society. Yeah. They're put to the fringes. They can't work in a particular way. Right. They right. can't, they can't, other than limiting their access to children, most offenders can live a fairly normal life. Yeah. And given that opportunity, a lot of those offenders will never reoffend again yeah. because they know the consequences because right. they've been there once. Yeah. Right. But what we do, not just in America, what a lot of the Western world does is it says, well, you're a sex offender. You've done something to a child. So 
we're going to put you over there and we're going to yeah. forget about you. Yeah. Right. And so is it any wonder that some of those go back and do it again? Yeah. Because they can't get a job. They can't have a relationship. They've got nowhere to live. Yeah. So their life is a car crash. And we know that once someone is depressed and they're down and they've not got much to live for, their likelihood of their offending goes up. Go back exactly. to those coping mechanisms. So that's and why that- you need to intelligently manage offenders. You know, you don't forget about what they did, but you're right. just more intelligent about what how you manage them. And that, that brings up something that I wanted to discuss. <laughs> I mean, I want to talk about what you're, I mean, we could talk for hours we've said it and there are a thousand things i want to make sure we mentioned your your um series that's coming out i want to make sure we tell our listeners what that is but what your training that you're doing um on the side talk about i mean you have some partners in that you guys are focused on certain areas um i've had the the pleasure of sitting through it and, and hearing um a lot of great things that i think would benefit a lot of investigators to hear. So talk about that side of things. Okay, so during the pandemic, we sort of, all the training that um, was happening across the world stopped. Yeah. So uh, myself and a friend of mine called Larry Bronstein, who's a lawyer, a defense lawyer from New York, and a guy called Jim Tanner, who's a a probation officer and a sociologist from Colorado, um, we formed a little company to do some online training, and we started off with saying, "Well, look, we're, we're a little bit bored. We need, you know, <laughs> we need to stimulate our minds a bit." Um, so we started doing online training that sort of took off, and we were doing more and more. And the essence of that training is a one-stop shop for people that deal with child sexual abuse. So yeah. I talk about offender behaviour, understanding the mind of the offender, getting the the, the perspective of the perpetrator, and then. Jim talks about, uh, Larry talks about getting your case to court, the things to look out for, how you can present your case at court, you know, how a defense attorney might try and unpick your case and discredit you. And then Jim talks about monitoring offenders in the community and the ways in which you can do it. So it's a sort of one-stop shop for people that deal with right. people in this sort of this area. And that's that's an area where, you know, there are we're sort of spoiled because yeah. we have these great places to, to do training, but there are some places that don't get this training all the time. So that opportunity to have maybe the one training they go to this year be everything. What are you teaching here at the conference? So this conference, I'm talking on a number of things. So I'm talking about uh, understanding the perpetrator perspective and doing that a couple of times. So my presentation is called Get Tuned In. Okay. And the reason it's called that is because what I try to do is get my students to understand offender behavior by tuning them into the behavior. So the analogy I use is that if you ever try to buy a car, you start to look online and you go to the dealer and you, you've right. got a couple of models in mind and then you decide on one. And when you've decided on one, you suddenly start noticing them everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yep. You yeah. see them in the garage, you see them yeah. in the freeway. They were always there before, but right. you're tuned in to that make and model. Yeah. So what I try to do is get my students tuned into the behavior. Because once you're tuned into it, a lot of the stuff that went over your shoulder and out the door before, because you wasn't tuned in, you start to notice. And that's the key to this. Interesting. It's about understanding the behavior. Could you share with our listeners who may be parents of children younger and maybe into their teens, um, we try to give listeners ways that they can protect and empower their child to protect themselves online, to protect themselves in, in every facet of 
their lives. But what would you tell that mother of the eight or 10 year old or that father of the 13 year old? What should they be looking for that they can, that they can tune in to protect their own kids? Okay. So the number one thing you can do to protect your children and other people's children is target harden the children. And by that, I mean, you have to reduce the perception of their availability and vulnerability. Okay. Because what offenders are looking for are children that in their view, in the offender's view, are available and vulnerable. And they will not target children that they don't see as available and vulnerable. So what you need to do is reduce that perception. So every now and again, go through what profile pictures you have. Mm. What do they portray to other people? You may think that they look cool, but actually what is that saying to the offender who's sitting 500 miles away looking at the same picture? So what you have to do is you have to try and detach yourself and look at it from the offender's perspective, which is really difficult to do. I mean, I tried doing it in my classes and some people are really uncomfortable with trying to think like a sex offender. Yeah. It's not a comfortable place. But what you need to do is take a step back and say, if I see this, but what does someone else see? Oh, right. And so we've got to stop there for a second because I knew, you know, we... I find myself telling even cops this, like what you think of innocently and what you think of as that's just the picture of my child in their gymnastics uniform, their bathing suit, their dance costume, whatever it is, that's innocent because you are thinking like a parent that's innocent thinking. I am staggered. Shift the paradigm. I'm staggered by the amount of people that go online and put pictures of their children uh, and then just put it out there into yeah. the world, you yeah. know, yeah. because you would be staggered what some of these offenders will do with that image. Yeah, and we find um, it on and, devices. And you wouldn't think you wouldn't go into the local supermarket and put pictures of your children up on the wall and say, "Yeah, just take one as you go out," you know, yeah. would you? You would never do that. Right. But that's what people do. And then because they're not thinking about the consequences, you have to think like an offender to protect your children. And it's uncomfortable and it's difficult. But if you think about availability and vulnerability, Mm. what does that portray to someone who wants to exploit my child? Yeah. Then what's the grossest person and the grossest thing you can think of someone (laughs) doing with that picture? And then multiply it a hundred times and you'll be somewhere near what some of these offenders can do and think about. Yeah. And so... The short answer is reduce the availability and, or the perception of availability and vulnerability, and then offenders will look for another child because right. there's plenty of children out there on. that yeah. are that aren't protected yep. in that way. Yeah. So check their pictures, check what they're saying, sit down with them, explain to them why they need to sanitize their profile, why that's not a good thing to say. Yeah, you know, and you know, I, I lots of parents come up to me. I, I mean, I don't do a lot about child protection as such because I'm really focused on the offenders, but a lot of people come up to you and say, oh, you know, how do I stop my young teenage son or daughter putting pictures of themselves yeah. up online um, and then get loads of problems as a result? Yeah. And I say, and it's, it's, it's not a popular answer, but I say, if they're going to put a picture of themselves naked online, don't put your face on it. Yeah. Yeah, because nobody can do anything with a picture that you can't recognize. Right. Right. The minute you do something that's traceable back to you, you open the door for all oh kinds of exploitation. Yeah. And, you know, this is what these offenders are looking for. Right. But, you know, you say that and it's it's not popular. I mean, of course, we don't want you putting your nude photo no, on. Absolutely. But when you say that, what it makes them realize is like, well, without my face, what is it? And it's like, yeah, so you shouldn't. That kind of should open the eyes of the child. Like, you shouldn't put it on at all. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Like, but you're never going to stop it because young people do silly stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. If you can't do stuff when you're young, then you right. never can do it. We all make mistakes, yeah. you know, and we all we all live to regret that. And, and, and you know, that's, that's part of growing up. Like, right. That's part yeah. of growing up. So if, if you're going to say to young teenage people that are exploring their sexuality in all kinds of ways, in yeah. different ways, in a much more um, open way than they did maybe in our generation, right. then you need to give them allow them to do it but you need to give them some sort of reference points and safeguarding and say to them you shouldn't do that but if you have this burning need to do it think about the consequences and how you do it because otherwise it's going to come back and it's going to burn you in a really bad well and there are people who want to give up that ground too right like yeah. we've heard people say, well, you know, if you're going to do this horrible thing, just do it. Th-. And I'm and I'm like, I'm also afraid to say we give up that ground because I want to fight against it. Yeah, well, want- it's the consequences thing, too. It's they, the the population of yes. kids today, they're not weighing the consequences. They're not. I often tell my own children, the things you do today are going to affect you four years from now. Yeah. Like what you want to do down the road. So think before yeah. you're doing this. You know, you're going to go for a job interview in yeah. 10 years time and someone's going to do an open source on your profile and right. say, look what you put up when exactly. you were 16. Exactly. So, you know, the, the, it's almost like... Um, we're seeing scholarships be lost that exactly. way too to yeah. college. Right? Exactly. And, and I think there's that fine line between letting children explore, do stuff, grow up, you know, find their own place in the world. We're trying to give them some guidance about how to keep safe online and offline. And, you know, if you tell a young person, don't do that. That's the first thing they're going to do. do, You You exactly (laughs) know what they're going to do. do. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a better way of doing that. There's a better way of attacking that by saying, perhaps, you know, if you do that, this might happen and that might be unfortunate. Isn't it like what we're just talking about with offenders is, you know, maybe we teach our kids the why of something, the motivation behind why you're doing that. Maybe, maybe we guide differently. Maybe yeah. we explain some of the understanding of what you need as to be, I mean, to be fair, they've been alive a lot less and they've seen a lot less. And so they don't understand the the things out there and the whys behind why we say, well, they don't know a life without digital technology uh, anyway. So even our perspective of coming in, in an era where we never had phones, you know, until much later in life. And we see this with parents who are so far behind on technology and the things that go on. It, it's the whole paradigm is completely different from the parent who's trying to say, well, you should just go outside and play. Well, who does that anymore? Right. Cause these kids are all connected to these. And in Texas, it's computers. 800 degree outside. Yeah, yeah. You could cook <laughs> eggs. Mean, and that's why technology has become a favorite place for offenders to go to because right. it's a better gateway to get access to children than yeah. going to the local park. Yeah. Exactly. You know, because uh, there are still some offenders that will do that. There Absolutely. are still some offenders that will go out and look to abduct or co- have contact offences with children in sure. public places. But the majority of offenders have realised that actually you could sit at home and you can have access to 500 children yeah. at the no touch kidding. of a button than trying to drive around looking for that one vulnerable child. I think right. that's one of the keys for the parents that listen to our episodes that that's what they need to kind of understand because yes they're behind the curve on technology but if they think of it in that context right there i mean there's no better way to sell that uh reality check i guess um yeah the shock and awe of things is is horrible and you can we can tell them all day long the terrible situations of offenders and uh, that we've encountered but they have to be grounded in what they're 
they're putting out to their own kids. Yeah, um, I agree. Put I, it I, in perspective, I guess. You asked me before about you know my advice. <laughs> I suppose the other piece of advice I would give is that um, in America you have a a very public sex offenders register. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know you can go online and look who lives in your street, the picture of them, what car they drive, where they work. Um, I find that problematic, and I'll tell you why. Really. The reason I find it problematic is I think it gives you a false sense of security. I think it thinks that people think they know where all the sex offenders live. Oh, so let that's me give, actually a good point. Let me give you an idea, yeah. okay? Okay, what we know about sexual crimes is that only one in every 15 crimes are ever reported to the police. Right. Okay? Of those crimes that are reported, only a small majority progress to a charge and a conviction. True. And only a small number of those go to prison and end up on the sex offenders register. Right. So you've got a register that tells everyone about the tip of the tip of the offending iceberg. Yeah. What you should be really doing is what you should be doing is saying everyone is a potential sex offender. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether they're on the register or not because you think you know where that offender lives in your street, but actually you've got another three that you don't know about. Right. And one of them's your babysitter. And now we're back to that. Yeah. Everyone's a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know, child, prote- they are. child protection starts at home. Yeah. You know? And I've done, 100%. I've done, I've trained. I've trained child protection officers across the world. Right. And one of the things I say to them is, okay, raise your hand if you've got children. And they put their hands up. I say, raise your hand if your child is learning a sport. They raise it. Raise your hand if your child is being taught a musical instrument. Everyone's got their hand up in the room. And I say, keep your hand up if you've made uh, contact with the person that's teaching them, had an in-depth conversation and formed your own opinions about what you think about that person and checked their credentials and where they worked before and how they've moved on. And... Everyone in the room, bearing in mind these are child protection professionals, put their hands down. Yeah. So if they don't do it, yeah. right. why would we expect the general public that have no background, no understanding of this type of criminality yeah. to do the same? Yeah. You know, in the UK, we have these, um, these little canvas things that people drag along the back of their bikes with a child in it. Have you seen it? It's got a flag on it. It's like a, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, a little, little like, trailer. Tra- yeah, a little trailer with yeah. children in it. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, I drive okay. along sometimes and think, why would you put your most precious object, your child, <laughs> in, in the a back. canvas box and drag it along the road? Oh, but they got a helmet yeah. on, so. Yeah, why would you do that? Yeah. And so for me, it's staggering that people, parents, would not seek right. to try and protect. And it's not neglect, it's just naivety. Yeah. It's about, actually, if you're going to give your child over to uh, someone that you don't know in the company of them for two, three hours, twice, three times a week, you yeah. need to know who you're leaving your child right. with. Yeah. Otherwise, you might randomly go into the street and ask anyone to look after them. You know what we see Some or do. I see in a lot of the uh, sessions that I go and teach other law enforcement or parent groups or whatever, especially those that are in child protection, when I ask, I've asked similar questions to that, a lot of them say, well, I'm the coach. I do that. I coach the team or I'm the assistant coach or I'm the guy that stays. I'm not the parent that goes and drops the kid off and says, oh, I got three hours to go and do all my shopping and my grocery mm-hmm. shop, and they have no But if they concept. sat down and let the person that's kids are with them get to know them and yeah. make sure that... Yeah, of course of, not, yeah. but... Well, you, you, as parents, you have to form your own opinions and make your own right. judgments. Yeah. So if you speak to someone and you're not keen on what they say or there's something nagging you and worrying, that sort of spider sense, that sixth sense that you're <laughs> right. not... That you, that you get yeah. sometimes, if you, you need to embrace it and yeah, you need absolutely. to say, okay... You're not going to that sports club. I'm going to get you to another one right. where I'm, you know, and explain why you're doing it. You yeah. know, and yeah. it's going to be difficult. Right. But if you just, just. It's not as difficult as the the shame and guilt you'll feel if something happens and you right. don't listen to and, it. And let me give you an example, okay? So um, 
I interviewed a man in Norway who was sexually abusing an um, 11-year-old girl. She was a gymnast. He was teaching gymnastics. And I, I said to him, so why did you target that little 11-year-old girl? And his simple answer was, her mum was always late to pick her up. Mm. Yeah. So to him, availability and vulnerability yeah. were the fact that he had to wait in the changing room with that little girl after everyone had gone for 10 minutes because right. mum couldn't get her act together to right. come and pick her up. And, yeah. So it's as simple as that, you know, yeah. and wow. offenders see it differently and they're looking for the chinks in the arm and they're looking for the opportunity and if you give it to them, they will exploit it. Yeah. That's wow. I mean, it's, manip it's master work. manipulation. I mean, that's, yeah. you're looking for that. They are to... the gold medal list of, of <laughs> manipulation. You know, if wow. you, they can rationalize, minimize, justify almost anything, anything. Yeah. Yeah. to themselves and to other people when it's necessary. All yeah. I can justify is that extra hamburger on Saturdays. <laughs> so. It's fascinating to me, man. Just the, just the dynamics of the thought process. And I don't know. It, it's just completely fascinating to me. It's the, best part of the whole job so you'll I have think. to find out when your next training is because tony's being he's I'm gonna be there yeah i'm so coming like so <laughs> afternoon, me, and, me and larry we've got a double session we're excited um, to talk to larry uh as well and i mean i want to well you're gonna be back i i know we'll have you back on but i want people to know about your series that's coming up because if they want to hear more about mm -hmm. what you've done and the yep. work you're doing tell us about the 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 series that you're doing for television okay so it's a, a 10 part uh, series of, it's called Murder Detectives with Graham Hill and okay. it comes out on the Crime and Investigation channel and Netflix on the 16th of October wonderful so Congratulations. we're like two months two months time it's not your first time you've done television yeah, stuff but dude, done quite a bit and yeah. um, you know it's uh, it's a world that I've started to get into a bit more um, and what I wanted to do was make um, documentaries and series that were more about the real yeah. life way of doing stuff rather yeah. than the sort of Hollywood sort of, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, this was an opportunity that was presented to me and, and hopefully people will like it. And, you know, we might even do an American version one day. Awesome. Wonderful. Dr. Awesome. Graham Hill. I didn't say that to begin with. I apologize. No problem. So, uh, thank you for your time. We've Fantastic. kept you for a long time and we appreciate it. Uh, it's a, a, an extreme pleasure to talk to you and extreme honor to sit and very, very pleased to meet you and uh, know who you are. I'll be researching the heck out of you so I can learn myself. Uh, I want to be a sponge. Nice to talk to you. Thank, nice. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Catfish Cops podcast brought to you by Brandon Poor and Tony Godwin. For additional information and available resources, please visit our website, www.catfishcops.com and click on the resources link. 